You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. One of the hard parts about preaching outside is having a breeze that blows your notes around. One of the hard parts about preaching outside is when there's no breeze to blow your notes around. And this morning, we have no breeze, so let's pray for a breeze, all right? Hope you had uh, fun this weekend celebrating our nation's independence. In spite of all the fireworks shows that were canceled, fireworks sellers still said they saw a surge in sales 200 to 300%. It's amazing. And they attribute this to everyone blowing on them off at home. So if you're missing fingers this morning... This is a judge-free zone. We're not going to judge you. We won't ask questions. We will pray for you, so you are in a good place. I'm going to have you turn to Psalm 23 in your Bibles. My name is Pastor Jeff Kelly. I am one of the pastors here at Grace Community Church, pastor for Assimilation and Student Ministry, and I work with the youth as well as new membership. And um, we are in our summer break, so to speak, and we will be kickstarting here soon. So we're looking forward to that uh, anticipation. But for now, we take some rest. So Psalm 23, what is it that you need? If I were to give you a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil, and I were to ask you to write down a list of things that you need, what would you come up with? Money? Friends, maybe you need a job or a promotion, maybe you need healing, maybe you need a husband or maybe a wife. Whatever the case, chances are that if I asked you to mark down or write down what you need, many of you would probably not think to put, I need to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, that is what we truly need. What does it mean to be conformed into the image of Christ? The word conform is used in Romans 8.29 when it says this, For those whom, and this is God, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The word conformed is a compound Greek word which means same form. Romans 8.29 presupposes that we are not in the same form as Jesus Christ. And therefore we are in need of being reformed or conformed to the image of Christ. 3% of all children born in the United States each year are born with some sort of deformity. That's about 114,000 children born with a deformity. Scripture teaches us that 100% of people born in all generations in every part of the world are born with a deformity. That we need to be conformed to Jesus in the way we think, in the way we act, in the way we love, and in the way we suffer. Last week, Pastor Brad said it something like this. In Adam's fall, we sin all. In other words, at the fall, we inherited a sin nature that has shattered the image of God in us. 
to restore this image, God had to do an extraordinary thing. He had to come to earth as a man. And so as a man, he could be tempted as a man in all points and yet live a sinful, sinless life. We call this the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We also call it the hypostatic union, which means he dwelt here on earth both as God and man. Because of Christ's human nature, not only was he tempted in points like we, he lived a sinful, uh, sin, sinless life, he died a perfect death, and he rose again on the third day, only to ascend to the Father and remain on the right hand of the Father, making intercessions for you and me, the saints of God. This truth is brilliantly put together for us by David in Psalms 22, 23, and 24. So if you are at Psalm 23, I want you to look at Psalm 22. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said that Psalm 22, he called it the Psalm of the Cross. And it's not hard to figure out why. Look at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Look at verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And then verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We can see that this is very much the psalm of the cross. Verse uh, chapter 24, David writes about the song or the psalm of ascension. We see this very clearly pointed out where in verses 1 and 2 it talks about Jesus being the creator of the earth. And then he descends into the earth. And then in Verses 7 through 10, he's ascending back into the Father. Look at verses 9 and 10. You can see this great climax where Christ is returning after his death and resurrection to the Lord. It says, lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So Psalm 22 is the Psalm of the Cross. Psalm 24 is the Song of Ascension. What does that leave us with? Psalm 23 is the Psalm of the Resurrection. Now when we look at Psalm 23, I want you to notice that we're talking about a song of resurrected life. This is the first resurrection. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were once dead in trespasses and sins. We once walked in that According to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verses 5 and 6 of Ephesians 2 says this, Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have been raised from the dead. This resurrected life is one of being conformed to the image of Christ. Through our lifetime, our shepherd is leading us to begin to think like Christ, act like Christ, love like Christ, worship like Christ, pray like Christ, and even suffer like Christ. Now let me ask you something. 
as we look at Psalm 23 this morning, I want you to notice something. The Lord who presents himself as the shepherd in verse 1 is guiding us and leading us to a destination. And where do we find that destination? To Jesus as our Savior in verse 6. So notice this. I'll read the whole psalm to you this morning. And then we will uh, begin the message. If you can, uh, just remain seated. We'll pray uh, or we'll... uh, We'll read this. I'll read this aloud. You can follow along with me. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The good shepherd is leading us to the good Savior. Who else would you trust to lead you to Christ but Christ himself? That's the grand theme, and that's probably why this has been called the greatest poem in all of human history, because of the great comfort that Jesus is guiding us to a place where we will live forever in a place of goodness and mercy and love. I want you to notice three aspects of what I call the glorious resurrected life. So that's Psalm 23, the resurrected life. Three aspects of the glorious resurrected life. Number one, the glorious arrangement of the resurrected life, namely, that the shepherd leads the sheep and the sheep follow and the sheep are provided for. Secondly, I want you to notice the glorious danger of the resurrected life. Namely, the shepherd must lead his sheep through dark valleys and the sheep must remain fearless. And lastly, the glorious exaltation of our resurrected life. Namely, the shepherd will glorify us before our enemies and make us dwell in his presence forevermore. Those three points this morning will be the subject of our text. Let's go to prayer and ask the Lord for help. Father, we need help. Lord, I need help to both preach this and to live this, as well as all of us, Lord, need help. And those here, Lord, need help to hear this text and to live it. And Lord, take great comfort in the truth that you've given to us this morning in Psalm 23. In Christ's name, we ask that you would bless this time. Amen. Number one, I want you to see the glorious arrangement of the resurrected life, namely that the shepherd leads the sheep, the sheep follow, and they are provided for. If you notice, in verses two and three, there's four statements about what God does for us. He makes us lie down in green pastures, not on rocky soil or hard terrain. He provides places where we can rest. God is thoroughly interested in our nourishment, so they're green, lush fields. He leads us beside quiet waters. If you lead sheep to rushing waters, the sound spooks them. 
makes them nervous. They get skittish. They want to run away. Not only that, that if they tried to drink in that rushing water, they could fall in and be swept away by the current. He renews our soul or restores our soul. He leads us in right paths or paths of righteousness. That phrase, paths of righteousness, means right paths or the right way to live. What we know as righteousness. The shepherd cares for his flock. Have you ever asked the question, why? Why would the shepherd care for the flock? Because the sheep are cuddly? Because they're cute? Because they're funny to watch? They're fun to be around? No, I think it's very important, and if we read this too quickly, we may miss that last phrase in verse 3. This is instrumental. Why does the shepherd care for the sheep? And it says, for his name's sake. Think about that for a moment. In, relate, in, in light of our relationship with Jesus, that Jesus cares about you, but his care is bound not by our character, but by his name. One commentator said this, sheep are foolish creatures. In fact, they're probably the most stupid animal on earth. One aspect of their stupidity is seen in the fact that they so easily wander away. And that's in Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have uh, uh, turned away to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He goes on. They can have a good shepherd who can have brought them to the best grazing lands near an abundant supply of water, and they still wander away to where the fields are barren and the water undrinkable. They are creatures of habit. They may be brought to good grazing lands by their shepherd, but having found it, they may keep on grazing until every blade of grass and every root is eaten. The fields are ruined, and they themselves are impoverished. No other class of livestock requires more careful handling than do sheep. The shepherd cares for his sheep is not bound by the sheep's character, but by his own character. This is the character of Jesus Christ. In John 10, I read it this morning, I'll read it again, verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. And notice this, I lay my life down for the sheep. Isn't it nice to know that Jesus' care for you is not fixed on you, it's fixed on himself? David says it this way in Psalm 109, 21, but you, O God, the Lord, deal kindly with me. Why? He says, deal kind with, kindly with me for the sake of your name. He ties it to the name of Jesus. Isaiah 43, 25, I, yes, I am he who blots out your transgressions. Why? For my own name's sake. That's what he says. Ezekiel 36, 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. And he's talking about their salvation. It's not for your sake that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. So think about this. There is nothing in your character that commends you to the shepherd. The shepherd is bound to you by his own name, and has demonstrated the length to which he will go by his own death. Now this shouldn't discourage you. This should help comfort you. 
right? When we struggle with feelings of unworthiness before God, we understand that God anticipated this. He could not tie his care to us as his sheep by our character. Sometimes we get it through our heads that God loves us more when we obey him than when we stumble. God understands and he anticipates that. That's why he had to go to the cross. This is the, the glorious arrangement. The shepherd is bound to the sheep by his character and not our own. This is what he provides. Care for you. Therefore, we follow him. We know that he will provide for us everything that we need. We have that confidence. I hope this morning that you have that confidence. That Jesus has accepted you, not based on your flawless life or even your somewhat good life. But Jesus accepts you because of his name. And through that, we accept him by faith. And see, verse 3, the ending there, gives us confidence because in verse 4, we run into a little bit of a snag. And this brings us to our second point this morning. Not only is there a glorious arrangement, but there's also glorious danger of the resurrected life. Namely, the shepherd must lead his sheep through dark valleys, and the sheep must not fear. Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The King James Version, the ESV Version, has the phrase valley of the shadow of death. Other modern versions just say dark valley or deepest dark valley. What's the difference between the two? Let me put this back on. It's a Hebrew, it's a compound Hebrew word. This is why you'd see the difference in the two Different translations, the compound Hebrew word, the King James and the ESV, split the words into two, giving it the meaning, the valley of the shadow of death. The modern translations keep the word together, which means deep, dark valley. So there's where you get the difference. Either way, we understand what it means. That our shepherd must take us through dark valleys. So you ask the question, why would the shepherd lead his sheep through dark valleys? Well, the necessity of dark valleys. Ancient Near East shepherds would search, and this was their job to pre preserve the sheep. They had to provide fertile ground. And in winter, when the snow would come and the winds would beat down on the high hills, they would bring their sheep down off the mountain into the valleys where it was dark, where they could find some nourishment. But there's problems with that. Wild animals lurk in the broken canyon walls. Sudden storms may sweep through along the valley floors. There may be floods. And since the sun doesn't shine into the valley very well, there really are shadows, which at any moment could be a shadow of death. But notice, he says, I will fear no evil. Notice what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that there will be no evil. The word evil just means danger. He's not saying that there isn't danger. So in your resurrected life, we understand that there is danger along the way to our Savior. What are those dangers? A fog of deep fears, maybe bitter disappointments, a sadness that refuses to lift, a habitual sin that you feel trapped in, 
rejection by one you loved. A deep sense that you keep disappointing God. Friends, those are deep, dark valleys. The Christian life is marked by difficult experiences. All of us know that. If we were left to ourselves, we would be left in fear with a loss of hope. But notice what the sheep's response is. He says, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Why does he remind himself of this? Because in the darkness, it's hard to see the shepherd. In dark times, it's easy to question the presence of God. Where are you, Lord? Why are you so far from hearing me? Maybe you've said those words in the past. The Lord may seem distant, and because the valley is dark, he's hard to see. But this is why it says, the sheep hear my voice, and they know me. God's voice is always going forth. It's easy when times get hard and and you're distracted by a swirl of, of disappointment. To see the Savior, but God's word is always here. He says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The rod and staff are implements that the shepherd uses to fend off predators and to goad the sheep in the right direction towards provision. He's well equipped. He knows how to handle his sheep. He knows how to handle your life. This is the beauty of the shepherd. There are times when you will have to go through dark times in your life. And just remember this, green pastures and still waters are not always found in easy places. Green pastures and still waters are not always found in easy places. In the depths of your darkness, you can find the richest supply of food and the freshest water to refresh your soul. But because it's dark, we have to keep listening to the Savior. Prosperity can be either a curse or a blessing. In short, money can cause you to forget God. Paul Tripp in his uh, weekly devotional this week, he said this about money. He said, a pastor of a church in an extremely affluent community told me that since his people can spend their way into or out of just about anything, it's hard for them to think of themselves as spiritually destitute. You see, dark valleys are necessary for us to see our spiritual depravity. But I want you to notice this. These are but seasons of life. When the threat of winter has passed, the shepherd takes his sheep from the valley floor that is dark and luminous. And he sees the green hills up in the, the mountains and he takes them there. And that leads us to our last two verses this morning. Last two verses. He says this, and this brings us to our last point, which is the glorious exaltation of the resurrected life. So we just saw the glorious danger. Now we're going to see the glorious exaltation of the resurrected life. Namely, the shepherd will glorify us before our enemies and make us dwell in his presence forevermore. Look at verses 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. 
my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The imagery shifts here a little bit from a shepherd, possibly to a king who is giving honor to a prince, which is fitting. Shepherds and kings often went together in people's minds. In fact, that's the way people thought of their king as a shepherd, which made David such a good king because he started as a shepherd. He went from shepherding sheep to shepherding Israel. In verse 5, we find that the life of the sheep is not one of accolades and respect all the time. You will have enemies. Jesus makes it clear Christians will have enemies. Scripture says, All who live godly will suffer persecution. Again, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. And again, he tells his disciples, If they hated me, they will hate you also. This is what makes the exaltation from hatred to honor so glorious. Think about it. The gold medal winner is awarded in the presence of all those who sought to beat them. Likewise, God is seen here as honoring us in the presence of those who sought to ruin our lives. Who are our enemies, you ask? Who are our enemies? Well, for David, it was his best friend's father, Saul, or his wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, who rejected him. Or it was his son, Absalom, who wanted to dethrone his father. Or it was David's friend and counselor, Ahithophel, who deserted David to follow Absalom let alone all the political leaders and all the kings of all the other nations that wanted to defeat David. Did David have enemies? Absolutely. Do you have enemies? Absolutely. For you, it could be a loved one, a husband who's rejected you, a wife who despises you. It could be children who disown you, maybe a friend, a co-worker, or an extended family member. But as we look to the broadest aspect of our Christianity, the church, it's much easier to see that the church has many enemies. The governments have set themselves against the church. Sometimes they help, sometimes they hurt the church. There are many politicians today that hurt the church. But like Cinderella's stepsisters who gnash their teeth when the prince fits the slipper to her foot, our enemies are said to look upon us and see the moment of our exaltation. And sadly, they will not exalt. They will not be happy about our exaltation. But notice, we will. There's two phrases here in verse 5. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Oil and wine are mentioned here. Two aspects of a complete life, the shalom of God to the people of Israel, the fact that they would have plenty of oil, the fact that they would have plenty in their cup. God is a God of prosperity, but his prosperity is always bound in his character. 
And it includes suffering. But notice this. Those enemies will not have the last say. Verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And what a joy that is. This is a deeply personal psalm. Deeply personal. If you've never done this before, I'm going to have you do it now. If you have your Bibles, if you're reading along, I want you to insert your, your name, your first name, in everywhere you see the pronoun I or me. So for example, verse 1 would be, the Lord is, my, the Lord is Jeff's shepherd. Jeff shall not want or lack anything. He makes Jeff to lie down in green pastures. So take a minute, put your name in that place, and then I'll say a few more words and we'll be done. I hope that's deeply personal to you. For we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In C.S. Lewis's last book in the Narnia series, many of you have read that, The Last Battle. The last chapter of this book is entitled Farewell to Shadowlands, referring to earth and Narnia. He points out a great spiritual truth that all of this is just shadows of a reality yet to come. On the last page of the book, Aslan has a conversation with Lucy about this. Lucy approaching Aslan, Aslan speaks to her. He says, you do not look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, we're afraid of being sent away, Aslan. And you have sent us back into our own country so many times. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped and a wild hope rose within them. There was a railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of a real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever. In which every chapter is better than the one before. I wrote a poem entitled Farewell to Shadowlands years ago when a good friend of mine, his wife passed away from cancer. 
the age of 44, I believe, based on this psalm. Farewell to Shadowlands. Beyond the Shadowland to go, to higher heights than this plateau, to glory on we will grow, though now we walk in the shadows here below. Our spirits groan for glory lust, though now in faith our shepherd trust, he guides us on in weakness must. His way seems hard, but they are just. Though death's dark valley make us weak, with shadows cast our fears will peak, as absent felt our faith must speak. Our shepherd leads on, though the way seems bleak. Each step will end, each path will crest to purify those who know him best. His name is love, we remember lest we think he cruel who gives the test. We walk by faith and not by sight, while in the shadows we hold strong and fight the gloomy sirens that draw us tight to fear the shadows and reject the light. At last to see our shepherd's face, all fear and pain will be replaced the secret of our Savior's grace, that love and goodness in this place will never end or be erased. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for gifting us with such a poem and for such a man as David, but even more so, such a God-man as Jesus Christ. For Lord, we stand here as beggars looking for your grace, but Lord, you tell us you, we are your friends. We are your sheep. You care for us. And we are bound to you by an eternal love. I pray, Lord, for all of us that we take great comfort in this. For those who have not yet come to that conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, I pray for them. I pray that you would open their eyes as the great shepherd, Lord, to see you as you are. We praise you for this day, this hot and humid day, Lord. We thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.